Welcome to the T-Hud Podcast. I'm Moby. I'm Leland Steele. And I'm Chris. Yes, listener, uh, it's true. Second time guest, uh, we brought back my biological brother, Chris. Uh, We've had him on once before, but uh, we wanted to discuss a certain topic that is very close to my brother's heart. And I made the mistake of almost posting on Craigslist for money, looking for someone to answer questions that he is eminently capable of being a guest host for. So thank you for making uh, time for us today, Chris. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And I didn't realize that this was a paid position. I was going to say, so. way to fucking shoot the, <laughs> to give the ghost there, Moby. Thank now you gonna for that. <laughs> oh, sorry. All, all the Patreon gold we've been earning all these years, I'll have to share some with my brother. <laughs> so I have something to ad- address here because clearly I know you two under different names and you have these aliases. Uh, does your viewer know your actual names or have you always gone by these aliases? <laughs> a- alias. I've, I've built my career upon my alias. <laughs> okay. So our original listener slash listeners do know the ones beyond that do not. They mostly know us as our pseudonyms. There are certain guest hosts that have been with us two, three times. They know our real names. I'll try my best to uh, to not call you by your real names. And I don't know if it's just me or all listeners, but the origins of your names I'm curious about. We have Moby and Leland Steele, which to me sound like you put your actual name into one of those Facebook like stripper name generators and it gave you <laughs> like like Moby Dickens and Leland Steele. <laughs> of course. Of course, Moby, you shorten it because it is the largest, most phallic looking animal on the planet, and you shorten it That's to Moby right. and Leland Steele just And I love with the it, ocean. So. I love to stick a tubular animal that's huge deep into the waters. I do I do feel <laughs> for the purpose of this episode, I will need to have a name. And I, I I'm thinking I'm thinking John Dong Hammersmith. But for the sake of the episode, you can call me JD Hammersmith. <laughs> that's okay. So will you be opening a general store in the Yukon during the gold rush there, my brother? <laughs> Something like that. We we got we got Leland Steele podcasting by day, <laughs> laying pipe by night. Moby D. That's fucking right. The man who says size doesn't matter. And JD Hammersmith. Every time, all the time is hammer time. <laughs> Can't touch this. <laughs> That's a all right. Fucking hilarious. So if I hear you not call me JD Hammersmith, then I am going to be using your real first I, name. I will try, honestly, organically, listener. This is not planned. In the moment, I will try to call Chris JD Hammersmith. Thank this you. episode. I think that's that's fucking mm-hmm. hilarious. And then we also have. Oh man, what does uh does Marty go by? Well, he's Ghost Marty now because he's dead. He's dead to us. AKA Muscles Glasses, Perfect Genetics, the Lord of Lifting, the three time champ. Put some respect on that <laughs> name. Champ. You know, he, he, he died because he chose to rub oil on people's backs versus continuing being on this podcast regularly. So you know. He, Someone he, has he to keep away. society moving. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious, man. Are we? Uh, we need to have the four of us on the the podcast at some point. 
Yeah, we do. We do. Yeah. Um, maybe yeah. we'll do. Well, maybe we'll do that for the end of year review this year, which is in uh, December. We'll we'll get you on. That'd be cool to do our first four ta- four person all of Tihud together. Because though my brother does not podcast with us regularly, he is the fourth official member of Tihud along with Marty. And I know this is a a decently bit well, maybe not a huge episode. It's kind of in the shadows of your one hundredth episode, but I know. In our group chat, you mentioned that uh, this is the 99th episode. Yes. So congrats for quite the journey. I know you, you two you. have put in a lot of work over the years, and I definitely know it's a 99th episode because you spam that group chat 24-7. <laughs> I do. Well, we do. I do. <laughs> yeah. It's basically a running thread of every single thing you do in a day-to-day. <laughs> I don't even know if I have the governance to actually post. I'm just a viewer in that chat. I'm pretty sure. I, I broadcast. It, it's like, it's like Moby TV. Basically. It's like, whether you watch any episodes is up to you, but they're still coming at you. Moby's eating bacon. He's going for a walk. He's hanging out with our dad. He's watching a beheading video. It's just like everything you're doing a day. That is... He's sharing that beheading video. <laughs> There's like 72% truth to that statement. It's like, hey, guys, as I call it, the Moby News Network, the news you didn't know you didn't want to hear. I would go to my oldest Hotmail account that is filled with spam and click on a random link sent to me from China before I would click on any link you send in that group chat. (laughs) I mean, I'll tell you that right now. To be fair, he does give like warnings before. I do. Sometimes. Well, I guess sometimes. <laughs> but now he does. And in case, <laughs> in case any RCMP or FBI or CIA officers are listening, everything is truthfully mostly legal that I share. The, the crazy shit is that that chat is on the cloud somewhere, wherever that is. Yeah, There's a whoever, server out there that has that data in it. <laughs> Yeah, there, there's a group chat somewhere where someone from the government could just be like, plead guilty. And I'd be like, to what? And they'd be like, everything. I'd be like, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just hold out your wrists. Okay, cuff them. Cuff me. It's like, okay, cuff me. I don't even know what it's for. You said it's for the group chat. That's that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's good pre-banter. Yeah, boys, but uh, let's jump into our little banter segment here, kind of our off-the-cuff pop culture news. And 99% of the time when I mention that, I defer to one of you two guys. Um, But today I felt since I have two banters, I'll lead with my first one, which is we say we don't care the shit about the Oscars, and I know you two probably don't. But when I say I don't, I'm semi-lying because part of me keeps one eye on the Oscars because I love movies so much. And Oscars, for the first time in many, many years, I think it's 20 years, are introducing a new category for 2026, which you will be able to win an Oscar for Best Casting. And I've really been thinking about that. It's so indirect compared to the other Oscars. It's like, if you're the director you're directing the movie. If you're doing the music, you're doing the music for the movie. Casting, you just have to pick who you think will perform the best in the various roles. I like it. I'm also a little concerned about how indirect the influence you have, but I wanted to ask you two guys, what do you think about a casting Oscar? 
I think it sounds like the fantasy football category for the Oscars. <laughs> like that's what it, <laughs> it's like. You picked the best team in your fantasy football league and are winning be- because of that. <laughs> like I don't know. That seems weird. Yes, because it is the most indirect Oscar. Yeah, I have watched movies before. So just recently, the other day, um, Wolf of Wall Street was put back on Netflix, and I watched it, and it was, of course, you know. Jonah Hill being like off the cuff the entire time. And I was thinking about how this movie wouldn't have been so epic had it not been for the casting. And, you know, I compare that to a movie where I think they very poorly casted someone. And, uh, you know, I don't know, this might be an unpopular opinion, but Brie Larson is Captain Marvel. I thought was a terrible casting job only because she's a great actress but she's the least athletic runner I've ever seen in any scene where she has to do a running scene. I just cannot buy that that person is a superhero. No, you know what? I Okay, so like, <laughs> honest truth, I, I find Brie Larson intelligent. I, I think she's gorgeous. I've honestly had a crush on her since she played like this bit role in, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the episode, but it was a zombie episode of like Masters of Horror from 2006. So she was really close to my age. So she's really young back then. And I thought she was super cute. But. Hey, t- tell us how you really feel. But but J.D. Hammersmith. <laughs> I, I agree with you that she was miscast as a superhero because she is not a naturally athletic person. I give her props for trying. She certainly shaped her body in the time since she got that role as best as she can. But you're totally right. Oh, she looks amazing. But it's like casting someone who can't throw a ball to be a pitcher in a baseball. Totally. You know what I'm saying? Even if they're fit, they still can't like run and do the physical stuff properly. Is that what you're saying? I, I guess there's a, there's a couple. I just remember one movie where she was running on a train or near a train and it just looked like someone who didn't know how to run running. And I'm like, this is not a superhero. <laughs> like, get her back in the air flying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get her in a jet where she has to move her hands like a little bit on the controls. Leland, what do you think about Brie Larson? Um, I mean, I, I think she's talented too. And, um, like I, I like Captain Marvel, uh, as a film. I mean, it's definitely a, the one of, in the bottom of the category of, as far as good Marvel films go for, but I, I thought it was, I, like, I enjoyed it. And I don't know if it was like miscasting or just kind of off on the writing so, somewhere, the, somewhere between the casting and the, and the script. They, there's a gap that still needs to be bridged there, it feels like. So I definitely agree. But again, I don't know if that's all Brie or if it's part of the writing or, or what, but... True. There's probably a lot more behind the scenes. Well, what what would you two say would be a recent movie you've seen where you were thoroughly impressed with the casting itself? Ooh, well, I'm actually about to bring one up. It's not a new movie, but it's my second banter. So I'll We've heard Top Gun before. Not Top Gun, <laughs> oh. Okay. Shocker, actually. I've been thinking about this. This might be a cop out in your opinion, but I know I've been sharing on our group chat some photos and stuff about Cobra Kai season six. I mean, that's such a huge show with so many characters that take the lead at certain points. And I honestly think it's super well casted. I'm amazed how someone like Terry Silver, the main bad guy now in Cobra Kai, was like a cheesy late 1980s villain who perfectly remade himself for that Netflix show in 2023. 
or I guess it was 2022 was released. I was thinking of that this past week. So if you're wanting something that's on my mind, yeah. Yeah, I think that was really well casted. I mean, maybe Oppenheimer. Yeah, you think Cillian Murphy or whatever was great as Oppenheimer? I, I do, but I'm more actually thinking Robert Downey Jr., who's had so many good roles. I mean, he just nails... He's going to win Best Supporting Actor, I have to believe, this year for Oppenheimer. He has, like, a perfect scene where he freaks out at the end of Oppenheimer, and he becomes terrifying, where he was, like, this nice accountant-type guy earlier in the movie, and suddenly he freaks out, and you think he would literally kill you in the moment, and it's an amazing scene. Recent movies... I don't know. I, I obviously like <laughs> Ryan Gosling was phenomenal as Ken. Yes. Right. But so, but how much of, how much is of like selecting your cast? Is it less, less about the person making the ultimate decision of who's going to play the role and more of the, the person auditioning and nailing the role, right? Like when I think of an actor, uh, an actor like Ryan Gosling, for, for example, I don't like, he's not an actor that I th- would typecast i mean maybe in his earlier career for rom-com stuff i guess you know from the notebook and all that shit but i think by now he's definitely branched out and he's shown his versatility as as an actor so like when i think of him i don't think of a specific role that he should play you know i don't know if i'm explaining that properly but i don't think like if you gave me the synopsis of a movie I don't think there's any specific genre that I would be like, oh, this has to be Ryan Gosling. I think Ryan Gosling Gosling is one of those actors that could make it work. So that's why that category seems very strange to me, because it's like you're rewarding someone else for the merits of the actors. Yeah, it's kind of like a coach winning an award in the NHL, National Hockey League, which which actually is a thing. It's like the coach wins the award. But it's because all the players that played for him had a really good year. And so it's like, you know, sure, he had some influence, but where does that influence in and where does it begin? And I agree with you when it comes to Ryan Gosling, because look, I'm a Ryan Gosling fan. But when I became a fan of his was around 2010, 2011. It's about 13 years ago. God help us at this point. It's like that was when he was doing Drive and Place Beyond the Pines, and uh, Blade Runner 2. And he was very typecast back then, which is quiet, subdued, suddenly explodes in rage. Really, those three things were what he did in all three of those movies that I mentioned, which were three of my favorite movies in the past 15 years. But I agree with Leland that he has been branching out. and And Leland's right. It's like, He's such a skilled actor at this point. You just put him in a movie. He's going to figure it out. Uh, who's She's on my mind because she's probably she's Oscar nominated this year. Who, Leland, I'm sorry, I forget the name. Emma Stone. Emma Stone. Emma Stone's already won an Oscar, I think, for La La Land. I'm pretty sure. And she's just a phenomenal actress. You throw her in any role and she'll figure it out to be like at least a B plus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm I'm curious about the films that will be in that category and their relation to like other nominees for other categories. Is it just going to be another category that we just see all this overlap, you know, from the best movies, or 
are movies that maybe aren't considered to be the best of the year, but still have an outstanding casting going to be considered. You know what I mean? Like how much, how much outside of this, the Oscar bubble is this new category really going to expand? And it's set itself up to be like very subjective too. Yeah. Sure. Because it's so indirect, right? Yeah, it's very indirect. And so like, what is the criteria that you are basing best casting off? You know, I would assume the success of the movie would have to play into that. Right. Right. That you you can't have an unsuccessful movie and a good casting. Or maybe you can. My guess is the criteria is going to have to be that all the cast from like the big parts to the small parts will have been deemed to be like really good. Like even if someone comes in and says 10 lines in the movie, they have to nail it. Same as the big name actors. But 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 you're right. Hammersmith. It's uh, J.D. Hammersmith. I'm sorry, Dr. (laughs) Hammersmith. (laughs) When I think when I've been casting too, like I think about the office, all the leading roles, all of the supporting roles like that cast seemed as close to perfect as you could get it, at least in the earlier seasons with the original cast. I mean, it was next to flawless. Now you look back at that show and you can't imagine other people having been in those roles. You can't imagine having Steve Carell not leading that show. Right. And you know, when I think about that show, it's not only the leads, but it's also every supporting actor and actress in that show just seemed to synergize perfectly for the type of comedy and type of content they were trying to produce. Yeah, I think there's definitely something something like you know, uh, magic can occur on screen for that. And I know we're we're kind of talking about TVs more than movies, but do you think they're going to have a similar category in the Emmys then when we're looking at television? Very good question, Leland. Now, this is only from the comment sections on the various YouTube videos I've been watching on this, but yes, scuttlebutt is is that Emmys and BAFTA and all those minor awards will take note of the Oscars and bring in the casting award. Hmm. It's fascinating this year. I, this year I really dug into what is Oscar season or award season more specifically. And it's pretty amazing. It's like a two month period of the year where not a lot of filming goes on January, February, right after the Christmas holidays. Basically, all these actors and crew just every week or second week go to award show after award show after award show. And all they do is just attend for two months with the end being the Oscars. The Oscars actually takes cues. They they'll get more votes for certain Oscars based off how people score in these minor competitions. So it's actually really complex and interesting when you get into it. But because those minor awards feed into the Oscars, yes, very likely I would say you're going to see casting awards for BAFTA, Golden Globes, Saturns, Emmys, you name it. Good. I mean, someone, whoever hired, whoever decided to cast Alan Richson as uh, Jack Reacher should get that award then. Give them an Emmy <laughs> because talk about great casting. <laughs> He's awesome. Yeah, you could have five foot six Tom Cruise as Jack Reacher, (laughs) or you could have that fucking battle tank from a PlayStation One game. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, he's a beast. (laughs) Yeah, that guy is built, and I love his sort of dry sense of humor too. Yeah, his delivery is all action, but he has this like layer of 
like subtle humor in his acting that I think is really good. And off screen, he seems like a, a really cool guy too. So yeah, I'd agree with that. Great casting. Yeah, he he actually does seem like a pretty cool dude. He's very outspoken about mental health problems. He's bipolar himself and uh, had an attempted suicide himself that he speaks very openly and candidly about. Um, I think he does a, a lot of great work off screen too. Oh yeah, and mental health is so important these days. It's something you know I think we've all started to address as men, and we're kind of lucky that as we all approach middle age. We're finally in a society that, you know, says it's okay for guys to seek mental health help. And it doesn't mean like you're weak or, you know, anything else. So, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm thankful we're there. We have people speaking out like that. Dr. G.D. Hammersmith, do you have any banter specifically that you brought or should we pass it to Leland? No, no specific banter on uh, on my end. Okay, well, I have something... I got something that you'll be able to uh, contribute to for sure, uh, JD. Uh, I so I've been playing a lot of Escape from Tarkov this since the the wipe uh, ah. at the very end of December, and this is really like the first wipe I've been like, f- like really actually playing and caring about. Definitely, I'm at the highest level I've ever been in, in the game so far, which is only like 27 or 26 or whatever. But usually, I don't make it to like even 20, and. I don't know. I, I don't know if like they've they, so for this wipe they definitely made quite a number of changes. Uh, recoil being one of the largest ones. The way armor uh, hitboxes work now, and all this, the plates in the arm. It's like a lot of big changes that I'm still trying to get used to uh, as well. But I don't know. It, it, this this wipe feels really really good. I don't know. Are you, have you been playing uh, much, JD? When I woke up this morning, did I? immediately play Tarkov. Yes. Five minutes before this podcast, was I playing Tarkov? Also, yes. I'm in a Discord with a bunch of my buddies here, and we typically play two games throughout the year, Counter-Strike and League of Legends, like both the kind of arena-based esports. But then outside of that, almost all of us have adopted Tarkov, and we have been going very hard at Tarkov. So uh, I've been playing for maybe five or six wipes now, and uh, the end game quest really is getting this Kappa container. It's called Kappa, which is almost like a trophy on your your uh, champion or your player, and definitely going for Kappa this year. So that's exciting to hear that you're playing. That's actually awesome. We'll have to get in some uh, some games together. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm trash, but I'm just really f- I'm just more focused on just like tasking and like learning the tasks and. Um... Dipping my toe into Lighthouse, which isn't going very well. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Have you made it to the uh, rogue camp yet? Where the rogue, the rogue snipers, they're just bulldozing you. I've made it to the edge of it <laughs> and no further. <laughs> M- Moby, how much do you know about Tarkov? One to ten. Maybe a two because I know it's a battle royale shooter. Has resets. Well, you better knock that down to a one. <laughs> all right it's a one yeah you know it's conceptually i think it's one of my favorite games it's this game where you you go in as a a player and whatever gear you bring into a raid you load into a live raid with other players um you play for keeps on your gear so if you bring in good gear and, and die and someone else extracts with that that gear is gone you don't get that gear back they get to keep all of your stuff all the items you found all the weaponry you brought in and stuff and yeah, it's it's got this gambling aspect, but also when you load into a game, like 
it's really pick your own adventure. You can go do quests. You can just go to to fight and PvP other players. You can go to hunt these bosses that are on the maps. You can go to simply make money. So everyone's kind of doing their own thing. And then, of course, you are having to face the elements of Tarkov, which is kind of a meme within the community. But there's landmines and claymores and AI snipers everywhere and basically a thousand ways to die. Uh, so I would say it's almost the the dark souls of like online PvP where it is rare to escape Tarkov. And when you do, you get this, you know, dopamine dump. And I think that's what keeps bringing you back for more. That is what brings you back. Uh, and like when you get out with some juicy, juicy loot, like you get out with a, a rare like labs key card that you're going to put on the in-game flea market for 20 million. Like you're like, oh, my God. But Okay, so they also, um, in December, introduced kind of another mode, more of like a standard deathmatch mode called Arena. Have you played Arena and tried that? I have played. My buddies are quite into it. Uh, I can't get behind it. It's It's been pretty tough for me. I haven't even bothered. I, I don't think it really interests me. I hear that it's just a grind. Uh, it doesn't sound like there's any ma- real matchmaking at all. So you can just, like standard escape from dark of just get ganked by like a level 40 plus right like with better gear than you that that is the exact issue you load in as a certain class and you have to work your way through a tree where you get better gear and the matchmaking seems really um janky right now so you get in there and there's guys who have way better armor you'd you'd have to shoot them 25 times to kill them and they got to shoot you twice and so you got to try to level up in that environment and it's just so difficult so yeah, I haven't been able to get behind it, but I, I agree with you. The wipe, like the main story wipe has felt really good, especially the recoil changes. They've reduced recoil to make it, I guess, a little easier for players. You know, there's still, I think, a big cheating culture in that game. So not only is there a thousand ways to die, then you have a cheater on every map ripping around and sometimes they have mercy on you and sometimes they kill you and send you back to your your hideout. So that's been a struggle. Um, other than that, yeah, I've been really enjoying it. The swipe as well. Yeah, the 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 cheating thing is definitely a it's a problem for sure. Um, and how how much of a problem it is compared to some other uh, similar games, I don't really know. I mean, it's dead now, but like Cycle Frontier also had a huge cheater problem in its early days, which to the devs' credits, um, they did a lot of work to to fix. But ultimately, the player base just died out for that game. I guess it, it wasn't strong enough in, in the, the market. I mean, the extraction shooter now, the, that market itself has just blown up uh, as well. I mean, pretty much it seems like every other like sh- kind of baseline extraction shooter uh, just can't, co- can't compare or can't compete with Tarkov. I mean, even think uh, like Marauders is like Tarkov Light, essentially. And it's got some, it's got a cool different setting. like. World War II in space, basically, kind of setting. Um, it's got uh, quite a few different aspects to it, but it doesn't have all the, you know, thousands of gun parts and hundreds of ammo types that you have to worry about and pick and choose the best ones to use. So it would, you know, theoretically should be way more approachable for a larger player base, but it doesn't seem like it can really maintain uh, a strong player base you know, obviously you get the spikes whenever they put out an update because it's still technically a beta game, uh, which is the same with Tarkov. Like Tarkov and Star Citizen, I feel like have very similar um, kind of development cycles. Like both of them have just been in this 
alpha slash beta state for more than a decade and just continue continuous tweaks are just being made over like every year every cycle or every wipe right i just love watching the player base debate especially on reddit i mean reddit is reddit right but i just love watching flame wars about what's good and what isn't and who's cheating and who isn't uh i don't know it's just all it's all really interesting to me it's funny that you bring up the the beta i mean Tarkov, so the the wife's tale I've heard is that Tarkov was originally originally developed as sort of a entry level game by Nikita, the the key developer, mm-hmm. and they were going to raise some money from Tarkov to then go create their actual project, which was a different game entirely different from Tarkov. Not sure what it was or the premise, but this is the wife's tale: is that Tarkov was never supposed to be this big. It was supposed to be almost like a test environment to show that they had some developing skills. Uh, make a little cash and then go pursue their their other projects. But yeah, Tarkov is blown up. I mean, incredibly in-depth game like you mentioned where I can now watch any Hollywood movie and recognize every single gun part on every single weapon they use in those movies because it's in the game. It's all real parts. Every It's like a hyper-realistic game. Uh, so there's so much detail in the game now. It's probably been out for what? Like eight, nine years? And then it still says beta every time you log in. It's like, okay, at some point you just got to, someone has to go delete that out of the game. Like this game is no longer in beta, by the way, but they lean into that. So I guess that's a crutch where if something's not working, they, eh, we're in beta. Yeah. I mean, it's a, a lot of points. It feels, it definitely feels that way, but like there's still a hundred things that they can fix and make Tarkov an even better experience. I mean, the largest complaint, uh, aside from possibly how punishing it can be, is just how long it takes you to get into a raid, especially on those peaks when high volume players like the first like week right after a new wipe. You're going to, on some maps, you can sit there for 10 plus minutes waiting to get in to actually play the fucking raid on that waiting screen. A waiting screen that you can't do anything else on. You can't organize your stash you can't even look at like your task lists and review what you might need to do going into that that raid right like you're just there on a loading screen for 10 minutes <laughs> waiting to get in like it's it's can be bad it can be bad your confusion is that you think tarkov is a game about going into raids uh, first of all <laughs> it's a game about hideout management the and true. playing tetris and jamming <laughs> items into every available slot in your hideout <laughs> And it's about alt-tabbing during loading to go catch up on YouTube videos. And then you go into raid is the third priority oh, of the man. game. But yeah, you're right. It is. Uh, there, there are some things that I guess could be quality of life changes, but good nonetheless. I, yeah, and I'm, I'm really pumped to hear you're playing. We'll definitely have to go rip some raids. So. And Moby, I guess uh, I guess you're coming in as well with your over, overheating furnace of a gaming laptop. There's no reason for me to be against that game, except I usually suck at those games, but I do enjoy playing them as long as you're tolerant of my suck, which, yes, uh, next month, Leland, for our epic episode 100, where we'll hopefully have Ghost Marty back, um, you know, we'll have to discuss Lethal Company for a few minutes at some point, because, um, yeah, I suck at that, too. <laughs> oh, good dis- good discussion on Tarkir, boys. <laughs> I mean, we kind of need to move on, but uh, I do just want to say, like, for my second banter, um, this is kind of half announcement here, but it was all Leland's idea. Um, we are going to be doing an upcoming Mission Impossible movie series review. 
I am currently on Mission Impossible 3. I've watched them before, but I'm watching them and taking notes for this bonus episode, which again is all Leland's idea. And I just want to say like Mission Impossible 2, I would not wish on my worst enemy, but Mission Impossible 3, Philip Seymour Hoffman as the bad guy, like rest in peace, man. That actor was amazing. And I'm about two thirds done Mission Impossible 3. And he's amazing because he just goes up to Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise captures him early in the movie. He's like, yeah, you don't really know what's going on here. Like, I'm going to be rescued. And Tom Cruise is like, no, IMF has got you locked down forever. And he's like, yeah, no, I'm going to get out of here. And I'm going to kill your wife right in front of you. I'm going to kill everyone you've ever met or known. And like, yeah, I'm just going to do it. And and that's what he does in the movie. It's a very dark movie. Wow. But like Philip Seymour Hoffman, pudgy, like like blonde guy, not someone who you would think would terrify you, but he's just so confident and like so calm in telling you he's going to rip your life apart. It's it's just like I cannot take my eyes off the screen. The only reason I took my eyes off the screen is to be here to record. So listener, Mission Impossible series review is coming up as a bonus episode. Not sure if it'll be next month or the month after. Moby, I heard you mention Mission Impossible 2 was not to be wished on Horrific. upon a worse. Was that, was that the one where they all had masks and they're like peeling yes. off layers of masks? Yeah, that one and, was And like uh, like stickers that let them talk exactly. So you like never knew off. who anyone was at any point because they're wearing a perfectly hyper-realistic <laughs> mask with a voice changer. And it didn't even feel like Mission Impossible because like they didn't play the theme in the beginning like all of the other movies. It was by John Woo, who's a Hong Kong action like kung fu director. And he like he's just such a mismatch to Mission Impossible. He just doesn't get it. And like it, it's just it's an outlier. I like I said, I've seen all the movies except the newest one, which will cap this off. And they're all good except for Mission Impossible 2. And like there's a point where Tom Cruise is driving a motorcycle, but he's not riding it. It's like beside him. I sent a picture to the group chat last week where like st- like smoke is coming off the soles of his shoes because he's driving his motorcycle, but randomly on the side of it with his feet literally on the road. I mean, he's come a long way. You should check out as you watch. I think it's the most recent one where he does the stunt where he actually drives a dirt bike off a ramp off a cliff with a parachute. There's a like a making video of that. It's like a 30. Yeah, I've seen it. I've seen that. I've seen that. So he's come a long way. I don't know who he won the argument with or what insurance company lets him do that now. But uh, that was insane. Yeah, totally. And and that was real. No, don't 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 get me wrong. Most of the Mission Impossibles are really good. I knew Mission Impossible 2 was the one I hated. And I hated it more watching it again. And I let Leland know the pain that he was putting me through for this bonus. <laughs> well, I mean, I have to go through it myself, so you're not going to suffer alone. And yeah, I, I, I'm looking forward to that, and I'm looking forward to just watching all of them, like, in the sh- a short time period and seeing how how far they come. Because I was, I thought about it because I watched the newest one, like Dead Reckoning Part 1, which Part 2 now doesn't come out until 2025, which really sucks. I was kind of hoping it would actually be pretty soon, and then we could, like, see it this year and then do it, but... I guess not. But yeah, I, I thought Dead Reckoning Part 1 was entertaining. I mean, I watched it on, you know, my nine and a half hour flight coming back home from the Netherlands. So 
I didn't have anywhere else to go. So maybe that's why I was so engaged with it. So we'll see you on a rewatch. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm looking forward to it. Um, like I said, uh, Mission Impossible 1 was much better than I remembered. I was completely invested. Love it. Uh, Mission Impossible 3 is much better than I remembered. And I'm pretty sure 4, 5, and 6 will be really good as well. My, my point, though, I don't want to get like too far, and I know we're under a time crunch, really was that, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, man, he's such a good actor. I own so many of his movies. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, he had mental health issues. He took his own life many, many years ago. Man, <laughs> he is good. Because you got to remember, like, uh, there's one point I know we we're teasing Mission Impossible 2 because of the masks and the microchip sticker across the Adam's apple that lets you talk like another character. There is one scene in Mission Impossible 3 where Tom Cruise is mimicking or using a mask in the microchip to mimic uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. So what you actually have in the movie is Philip Seymour Hoffman as himself playing Tom Cruise, playing him. And like the body language and how he talks, even with his own voice, totally still makes you think he's Tom Cruise. And I, I just think it's phenomenal acting. That, that's my only point. Yeah, I'll have to circle back and watch that. I don't think I've seen that in a decade, at least. Awesome, Leland. Well, why don't you uh, lead us into this uh, first segment here? Okay, uh, let's let's get into the video game variety show, where this is the segment that we brought on the JD Hammersmith to to talk about JD baby <laughs> to talk about Counter Strike. Just pound this segment so good. <laughs> I have never really played Counter Strike, and uh, obviously, this game itself is like incredibly notorious. Like, it has its own huge reputation. To me, it's like the game that Valve just coasts on. I mean, that and obviously running and operating Steam, that Valve just doesn't do anything except now those two things in my eyes. You know what I mean? Like, and they don't have to because they just print money. It's by all accounts. Yeah, I mean, I think you've you've brought up two good points there. It started as this this esport game that is and has been an incredible kind of arena based esport for a long time, but now this game. Is he is a money making machine for Valve, and I know you you're probably somewhat familiar with the the market, like the skin market in that game. Yeah, but it's gotten to a point where it is out of control. Like it is wild. Yeah. So JD, you shared some notes with us before the podcast, so thank you for your preparation. And I know you have some notes on how crazy the amount of money Valve can bring in on certain parts of this game. So yeah, feel free to elaborate and tell our listener. I mean, last year they brought in a billion in revenue off skins. <laughs> Just off skins or like all of Counter-Strike? I believe off I believe off maybe the game itself, but I would okay. you know, I would assume 95% of that is at this point skins. And the crazy thing is is that they sell you a key to unlock a loot crate. But you buy the loot crate most often off another player and they take a small percentage of that transaction. So the, you know, the loot crate itself could cost anywhere from a dollar to some of them cost a hundred dollars, thousand dollars, some of them. Wow. So they're taking a percentage, but then you're buying a, a three or $4 key to open the case. So they're making the money on the keys, whereas players are actually making the money from transacting the cases. So they're only capturing like half the revenue. So the market itself must be billions of dollars 
of money being passed around in just the Counter-Strike skin market. So so let me, sorry, let me hold you on there just for a second, because this blows my mind and I've never heard this before. Whether it's secondary market like resale by players, you're saying some loot boxes are up to $1,000 real money? Well, so there's items, there's skins in the game that are discontinued. They were for a certain event and they're only contained in that loot box that now some players hold and stash for, for value. Um, and so when you open it, you might have a, a one in 500 chance to get that rare skin. And that rare skin could be worth tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of dollars. So simply holding the case that has the one in 400 chance of the skin or one in 200 chance of that skin in itself is worth thousands of dollars. That's amazing. That, that honestly blows my mind. That's I believe the biggest transaction for a single skin was 1.5 million for like a knife skin. <laughs> and someone actually paid that. <laughs> yeah, like that was a, like that was a paid purchase. But, you know, you'll have gun skins that are selling for like $400,000. So basically Holy the way the skins shit. work is every there there's cases that have maybe 15 skins in them. And there's an ultimate rare item, which is typically a knife or a pair of gloves. So those, the knives and the gloves are worth thousands of dollars each. But within these skins, there's different rarities. So battle scarred, meaning it is a really damaged, scuffed up looking skin to factory new, which means it looks like it's in pristine condition. So you can not only, when you roll, you have a chance of getting one of these rare skins you know, with a certain wear level on it. So say it's a factory new skin. Then there's a couple hundred, I think maybe about 600 patterns of what the skin could look like on that actual knife or on that gun. And some of the patterns sell for really high because they're, they're unique. Uh, so if you get a good skin with a good wear and a good pattern, and, and the last thing is you can have a, uh, what's called a stat tracker on the skin. It, it records how many kills you've gotten while using that skin which is like a, like a, you know, maybe a one in 50 chance to also get the stat tracker. So if you get the right skin in the right wear with the right pattern and a stat tracker on it, that skin could be worth $100,000. So you are actually winning the lottery when you open some of these cases. Within those rarity levels, factory new, there's a decimal place to show you how new it is. So, you know, it ranks from one down to like 0. 0.000000, as long as you can go one. So if you have multiple zeros, it's even newer than some of the other. So it's this whole subculture market now where there's collectors all over the place. And that in itself has caused a lot of issues in the game because uh, you have pro player. That, that brings a bunch of gambling into the game. You can gamble skins on matches and stuff. And so you have pro players throwing matches to get skins because they'll get paid more from the skins than they will from wow. their actual contracts. Okay. Uh, so there's been all these controversies and there's just a lot of money now in the esport itself, largely being driven by the skin market, which is, is wild in itself. So, okay. So all of these stats that are applied to these skins, like obviously that was the decision that valve made to implement, right? Was that, or is that all secondary market? Because that's all with like within that, the that's game. all valve. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. all that's all valve. So I just don't think they ever knew it was going to be like collectors and and these like rare skins that and some of the things are so silly that make a skin rare. It's like you'll have a pattern that is 
called cased hardened. And it's this, you know, you get these gold and blue hues on your gun, but the more blue it is, someone just decided and the community agreed, the more blue it is, the more we like it. So if you get a really blue skin, like it's worth tens of thousands of dollars randomly. It's just, and I, I wonder how long this will maintain because, you know, in a decade from now, people will be like, I don't care how blue the skin is. But right now, that means a lot to collectors. Little things like that that Valve couldn't have ever planned for. It was largely being driven by the community, I guess, well obtaining all these skins. So, yeah, it's bizarre. But so for Valve to get their piece of it, like, it isn't re- it isn't actually a secondary market. Like, you know, when I think of, like, a secondary market, I think of, like, Magic the Gathering and, like, you buy some cards off eBay or whatever. That's a secondary market because Wizards of the Coast isn't isn't getting a piece of that secondary market. But Valve has their claws in this market, so it's it's not even, like, a secondary market, right? So they had to have planned for a market to exist. Yes and no. So the, the market exists on the Steam community market where you can go in and so when I play Counter-Strike, every week when I level up, I get a case. I, I get a case and I can go sell that case on the community market and someone will pay to get a key and open that case. Now, I can export my skins to third-party websites okay. and sell them and transact there. And then that site is usually taking a cut and I can put them on gambling sites so I can essentially yeah i guess you take your skins and you're sending them to a different steam account which is then tied into these companies these other um gambling sites and stuff like that so yeah the skins are never actually leaving valve but they're leaving your possession um and then you get credits on other sites where you can trade and buy skins and stuff and so yeah there there are for sure and valve's trying to cut it down they're doing some ban waves to say hey if we catch you on these other sites transacting your, your account will get bound. And there's been lots of accounts frozen with hundreds of thousands of dollars of skins on them because you know, maybe it's a bot that is transacting so often for one of these online casinos or whatever it is. But yeah, so there there's the main market and then there are secondary markets where crazy stuff's going on, betting, sports gambling, all that kind of stuff. So, so Valve really is only getting a piece of that because they are Steam. Because Valve is Steam, right? It's like... They're, they have these two pieces that they've now just connected after the fact. And yes, you know, if they didn't operate Steam, it just would be someone else that was getting all of that money. Correct. Yeah. So they, because they own Steam, they, they capture it all. And at the end of the day, to open any case, you need to buy a key from, I guess, Steam or, or Valve and, and open it. So the, the secondary markets can't open cases. A case is a case. You have to bring it back into your possession and open it in-game with a key that is an in-game purchase. And yeah, to, to open a single case, like Canadian dollars, I think is about $4 to open one single <laughs> okay. case. And you can get anywhere from a one-cent skin to, you know, like I said, a couple thousand dollar skin. And most oftentimes you're getting a one-cent skin or two-cent skin. So yeah, it's... People dump a lot of money into this. It, it, it's interesting because this is like two years old news now, but I found it fascinating years ago. Um, you told me you one night, you you and your buddies that play Counter-Strike, and this was before Counter-Strike 2, but where there were still skins in CSGO, you would have like watch parties where like your friends would watch you open cases in the hopes you would get something rare. Oh, we were doing that last night. <laughs> Wow. Okay. So, the, the most epic opening for me is uh, we went out for my birthday that one time where we went to an escape room and had some pizza together. 
Um, yeah, we I saw Leland first when I walked into the building, and I thought Leland was there for his Christmas party. I couldn't put it together that it was a surprise party for me. Like my brain didn't work. But after that night, great night by the way, uh, I went home and Moby, you had given me some Steam dollars, and I. Yep popped open my stream and I had all these cases. I'd never opened cases before. And my friends, we all picked like, let's pick a case to open. And, you know, I had a couple bucks on steam and I, the first case we picked, the first case I opened ended up being a knife that was worth at the time about $400, uh, which now probably today is worth about $2,000, but wow, <laughs> it was an epic, epic Crazy. opening, which started my gambling addiction to skin for the next five years following. So thank you for that. Yeah, I know your wife loves it. I've talked to her about that. Now every property I own is in arrears now from all the money. I have three mortgages going into CS skins. But I look so cool when I play the game. So, so how, how do, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm remembering a, was there a problem when we went into like CS2? with the skins transferring over was there not issues with that release skins transferred over well okay so csgo was sunset about i think maybe august or september of 2023 so just recently um and they they turned the switch off csgo you could no longer play csgo you could only get into cs2 uh, which I think was a good idea because it it forced all the the user base to jump onto the new game and CS2 looks visually amazing. There's this lighting and the shimmer on everything, the maps and the skins, and it really, really looks future proofed at least for a while. And know that the skins did transfer over properly, but what didn't transfer over properly was a lot of the gunplay. And the recoil and the hitboxes that is what has built CS into the esport it is. It, it it used to just function so flawlessly on CSGO, you know, after the years they put into the development of it. It was just really this like raw, perfectly programmed arena-based team versus team shooter. And then they moved it to CS2. It's as if they leaned into the skins. Visually it looks stunning, but now they're facing some issues with performance in the gunplay and i know there's a lot of pros that started boycotting it at first and some you know most teams have warmed up to it now because there is no other option you can't default back to csgo so yeah they've been working on that and it's been making improvements here for you know valve's been making improvements in the game for the last you know six seven months and it's been getting better but it's definitely been a, a bit of a journey and i know for sure like my circle has has stopped playing it as much because of the hitbox and the hitboxes and the, the registry of the shots and stuff like that. It, it doesn't feel quite um, optimized just yet. I'd say. That's interesting stuff there, JD. And I mean, you have some notes that you sent us that you had prepped for about uh, Counter-Strike 2's current state. Um, one interesting thing that jumps out to me is that um, unless I misread your comment, the game is currently losing a little bit from its uh, player base. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, and, and again, maybe maybe this is anecdotal. I probably should have looked at the stats, but I know when CS2 was launched, there was speculation that it was going to be launched with what's called an operation. They run these operations in the game where they release new cases uh, and access to new skins, and 
you know, game comes out in August or early September and October rolls around, November rolls around, December, and there's just no new content for the game. I think they were struggling so much trying to get it to perform well, maybe, that they, they didn't have time to put out the, the skin content. And a lot of people just lost interest because now you have a game that's not putting out new skin content and it's not, you know, the gunplay isn't as refined. And so there's nothing for the players, you know, the casual player there. Sure, the esports were, were still going on in the back end. And, uh, but just until this week, actually, they put out the first new case with new skins since the switch to CS2. So that just happened, which is what, seven or eight months after after the switch. So, yeah, it brought us all back in immediately. We're all jumping back on <laughs> CS2. We're all playing to get our weekly case to see if we get the new case, which I think the day the game rolled out, it was selling for 55 bucks per case. Even if you got like a shitty skin in that case, it was, you know, you could get 600 bucks for like a, a mid-level skin Jeez. in that case on day one and it, it tapers off. But yeah, it's it's quite wild. That's nuts. Um, The other point you've got, which to be 100% honest, I don't quite understand, but maybe you can elaborate on it, which is to do with current CSGO 2 or CS2. Registration is so good that the animations in the game are not syncing with it. <laughs> oh, like hit register? Yeah, so Valve had this idea, and in theory, I think it's really good. They, they call it subtick, and I'm by no means an expert on this, but essentially it's like, the millisecond you pull a trigger and your crosshair is on someone's head, it is registering that bullet. Like it is made to be a flawless system where registry is perfect. Now, the animations in the game are slower than the registration of the game itself. So what you see on your screen is not necessarily what's actually happening in real time. So when you're shooting, there's like some delay in your gun shooting, at least when, it, when CS was first put out here a couple months ago. So what you're seeing and what was happening was not in sync and it was causing a lot of players issues because yeah, it was just like really tough to track what was actually happening. You almost had to be aiming in front of the person because any leg or latency when you were shooting at the person, you're actually shooting behind them and it, it caused a bunch of issues, but in theory, it's good. They're trying to make this like flawless system of perfect registry, but yeah, right now there's just some syncing issues and that's what's causing, I think a lot of the, the imbalance of the, um, like the gunplay right now is that you can shoot at someone, but you're shooting at where they were half a millisecond ago rather than where they are right now. Uh, and then the shot doesn't register, even though on your screen, that bullet is going directly through that player model because it's like the servers can't keep up with how good the registry is or the the latency. So, so maybe on LAN events, yeah, it's, it's better. Yeah. But when you're playing, you know, across the nation with high ping to someone else, you're not seeing what's actually happening, which is causing a bit of an, bit of an issue wow okay yeah it's like it's like desync layered on top of ping issue desync right like it's just like compounding yes the standard problem you already would get just by playing online games like desync is like destroys tons of games right like it's a problem in in any online multiplayer game uh if your connection shit that's just that's terrible <laughs> yeah so it, it seems like there's a lot of desync right now and largely due to the way that they're trying to pioneer this new type of registration um which you know when when it gets ironed out yeah it's probably going to be the the new benchmark for for arena-based first-person shooters but yeah you know with that comes a lot of um a lot of troubleshooting and i think we're just not there yet but nonetheless still a lot of fun there's a, a major going on 
uh, or there was major qualifiers going on. So every year there's, there's these big tournaments called majors. Uh, they just did one, which was uh, an open. So any team could join uh, and you could try to work your way up and play against the pros and, and make a name for yourself. But when they let any team join, uh, of course, you get a lot of cheating with that. There's always been a, a subculture of cheating in this game. So you have all these no-name players, of course, coming in and popping off. And then a lot of them, I think they had banned like 30 players out of the tournament already so far. Jeez. For, and these are like on televised, shoutcasted tournaments where, you know, it, it, you have tens of thousands of people viewing them and realizing that look, they watch a player and they're like, this guy's way too suspicious. Like what he's doing is not normal. Uh, they get called out and they get audited and yeah, they, they get banned. So it's tough because there's so much money in the sport now and it's still somewhat not regulated. It's not illegal to cheat. You're not going to jail. So like these kids are having all these, these hardware cheats and stuff that trying to give them an edge to, to, you know, get a piece of that cash and give, get them a name. So definitely, uh, a little lame in that sense. And I think when there's money, you're always going to have that corruption, but I mean, even when there isn't money, you have that corruption. Again, we go back to Tarkov's cheating problem. Like, yeah, you can you can like RMT stuff for people, right? And people will pay you for in-game shit on this black market or whatever. But like, what? Like, how much would an RMT actually make? I I'm curious about that too because yeah, it's like Tarkov did a great job, Moby, where you could you used to be able to just drop items to your friends and other players. Uh, but now if you take items out of your hideout into a raid, you can't just drop them for a player, essentially meaning trying to reduce the real money trading. So like a cheater can't just come in and drop you a bunch of high tier items anymore. It's not allowed. So I don't know how these cheaters are making money in the game. They must just, like, I don't know. They must just be selling accounts loaded with cash where you just buy an account that's been cheated on. And I guess that's it. But I mean, also, you know, people cheat in video games even not for monetary gain for whatever gain they get out of it personally for being good in quotes, right. At this game that they are just cheating with. Oh yeah. They, they get some clout from their friends group right. and yeah, yeah, yeah. until they get banned and have to make up an excuse about why they're not playing the game anymore. I mean, I don't even, I don't even get why would like the, the, the most valuable in-game things in Tarkov is when they're found in raid. And if you bring something into the raid, it's not found in raid, right? Like, that makes no sense to me. Yeah, I th I think maybe people just. Yeah, I I think it's funny. Like I've never cheated. I think it's funny that these guys cheat. They'll go into raid and like I I would just assume you get bored so fast. Yeah. It's like okay, I I always win. Like how how much can you play of always winning before you're like okay, this is no longer fun or challenging. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It has to be narcissism for your ego. Like that's the only reason to keep doing it because yeah, you're totally I, right. I don't get it's it. like what's what's enjoyable about it and i guess you maybe you feel good because other people are in pain but even when people cheat and they'll go wipe all the players in a server they can't carry out all that loot I so know. a lot of times when you get cheated you get all your gear back from your insurance yeah, yeah, sure yeah. it's just like you just get sent back to your hideout and you have to go again and i don't know what it is that they're getting out of it but i don't know it's moby did did i did we, i ever tell you um it was like like around this time last year uh, about the wiggle in Tarkov, <laughs> did we ever tell you about that? No, that's not ringing a bell. Well, so there was a there was a YouTuber. Uh, I think his YouTube name is like Goat something or whatever. And basically, he made a video where he uh, employed a, a particular cheat, like an ESP cheat, so you could see players through walls and stuff. And he did this 
experiment, right? I mean, there wasn't very many parameters, but essentially he would just go into raid with his ESP on, looked to see other people. And what he would do is just wiggle his character left and right. And if he got wiggled back, then that means someone else has ESP looking at him through the same wall that he's looking at them. And, you know, his like anecdotal data was like, 60 plus percent of raids he went into he he was wiggling with people that so i don't know it was like a huge thing it like blew up in the community yeah the wiggle the wiggle that killed tarkov you know i i have a solution i need to just get on the development team so it's quite easy to (laughs) see when people are cheating their their kda is insane they have insane good stats and they're usually super high level with minimal raids played all you have to do is take these players and put them all into the same server. Exactly. Together. Exactly. That's it. It's like, <laughs> exactly. okay, you, you all have 20 plus KDA, which is not feasibly possible unless you are cheating. Cool. Go play against all the other players. And then they're just yeah. going to get bored because they all cheat on each totally. other. Exactly. You're right. Exactly. You're totally right. Exactly. That's amazing. Don't ban them. Just like let them. And then they don't even like let them know. Just let them. They'll hate playing it. They'll hate it. Because they're all cheating on each other. They'll be annoyed as fuck. <laughs> I mean, the, the other problem with that is like a lot of, you know, uh, uh, a prevalent uh, theory in, in the community is that like Nikita doesn't actually give a fuck about cheaters because when they do a ban wave, it just means that those cheaters are rebuying a new account. So it's just actually a source of income for Nikita. Yeah. Right. So I, I've heard that conspiracy. I mean, it seems plausible. Yeah, it seems plausible because they don't have in-game purchases, so they are relying on selling um, new versions of the game, yeah. new accounts. But you know, like I would, I would be willing to put money in as in-game purchases for a wipe. Maybe you buy a certain operation, or uh, you can buy your way into a certain different task line that gives you a bunch of rewards. That could be cool. Twelve dollars at the beginning of a wipe, yeah. but then put that twelve dollars into an anti-cheat client or something to combat it. It's like, hey, I'll, I'll pay to not have cheaters in all my raids. But yeah, it just seems like a bit of an unaddressed issue right now, or I don't know what the bandwidth is because it's a Russian dev team and I know things have been going crazy out out there. So yeah, who knows, but fun nonetheless. I mean, I you've kind of answered most of this. The last question I would have for you on Counter-Strike is like, I guess, other than the skins and the microtransactions, can you kind of contrast the differences between CS2 and 1.6 which like 20 years ago i trained you on when i used to be into it it's a lot has changed i mean i'm thinking like hitboxing must have been better in 1.6 compared to cs2 so far a lot has changed and also a lot hasn't changed when you think about like an arena-based sport like like soccer like the soccer field itself hasn't changed in the last 30 40 50 years it's still the same field the same lines you have two goals all that really changes in the arena is the players and the teams and so counter-strike has really bought into that idea where the majority of the maps are almost identical to all the maps that were in the early versions of the game into counter-strike go into counter-strike or cs2 so they've they've kept the arena the same like I mentioned, it clearly is like visually stunning now. It looks really, really good. The lighting looks amazing. Smoke grenades and the Molotov cocktails, all the fire, like really, really cool and well done. Then the main changes are really 
the the gunplay like the the recoil and stuff and again they've tried to keep it version by version as similar as possible while making some like quality of life updates and i think the sub tick update will be good uh when it gets ironed out but until then yeah it's it's the same old game the same guns m4 ak-47 the op sniper rifle the deagle pistol like it's the same game it was 20 years ago which is why i think it's been so successful over the years is that it's not this rapidly changing game where you know where i in league of legends for example is the other kind of esport i play where every couple of weeks every month i log in every you know two months there's new champions they've changed item powers there's a new meta they've done all this balancing work in the game um, they've changed the map and it's a lot more maintenance to kind of keep up to the the changes in that whereas counter-strike hasn't they've remained very static and uh, and i think it's going to continue to be a very successful esport in the future as long as they kind of stay true to their roots like that which it seems like they're doing so yeah like i'm, I'm positive about the future i'm looking forward to playing counter-strike 2 in the next couple of years me and my buddies will all crack a beer and play late friday night and it's kind of been that that foundation for us. That's right. As I post to T-Hud in the group chat, if you're not playing 10.30 p.m. on a Friday, something might be wrong. <laughs> that's, that's my weekly wellness that's, check. That's my wellness check. You know, yeah. the, the I, I really like the comparison of, of CS and uh, League of Legends. Like they're, They feel like, uh, in this regard, they're two sides of, of the same coin, right? Where a, the static game and then the ever-changing meta somehow both contribute to the success of those games and the, the games communities, but they're just completely different routes and somehow they're both working. And to, to try to make an argument about which one is better, like you can look at those as examples and be like, I don't know if one is better. Like look at these shining examples of how successful either way can, can actually be in an esports. Yeah. And it's, they've, they've both done really good jobs, you know, Counter-Strike, has leaned into the first person shooter and league of legends is you know what they call a moba both stay true to their arena based games five versus five you jump in there within 20 to 35 minutes you're done a game you stop with your buddies you go grab a a beer and take a bio break come back and play again and they've both kind of kept that that element of and, and you know both of them have very competitive ranking ladders so you can understand where you sit within the community and, and how good you are. And now a lot of these games, both Counter-Strike and League of Legends have additional pages of stats and analytics you can look at. So you can break down, they'll break down your play style, what you're good at compared to other players, what you're bad at, what needs work. And you can actually pay in Counter-Strike an extra like $3 a month to get these advanced analytics where they break down everything about your game for players to improve. So there's this whole like coaching and improvement aspect to it now. So yeah, very, very interesting, but both games have kind of killed it. And, you know, something I think that League of Legends does particularly well is there's one global league that is run by Riot Games, where every region, every, every continent plays throughout the year, a tournament in itself, and the best teams that arise from that tournament then go to Worlds at the end of the year, the big world tournament where the three best teams representing each region play in a, a big tournament every October. Come January, this this you know season resets and the teams all start again. Uh, Counter-Strike hasn't done that yet. They haven't like globalized one single league, which I think is deterring them a little bit. There's these 
standalone tournaments throughout the year that have been recognized as sort of the biggest and best tournaments, some of them sponsored by, you know, big tech companies and stuff, but there's not a single global league yet. So with Counter-Strike, you can kind of pick and choose where you want to play. It, it would be more like, you know, like a European football. Do I want to play in the German Pro League? Do I want to play in the Premier League? Do I want to go to North America and play? And then I play all these individual tournaments throughout the year, whereas League of Legends is great. It's like the N- the NHL or the NBA. You play in one single league. Everyone plays in it. Everyone's against each other. Teams that rise up. One of them wins the big cup at the end of the year, which is a lot of fun. So That's awesome. Well, as it evolves, uh, we we may have to have you back on at some point. It's uh, been a really interesting conversation about where Counter-Strike currently is. Certainly, I've had my mind blown by a few things, especially the financials to do with the loot crates and whatnot. That's all the questions I have for the segment. Leland, do you have any? Uh, No, let's move on. Okay, perfect. So our final segment here, maybe our uh, slightly shorter segment, is a hybrid segment called Groundhog Day. And because this will drop... Middle of February, I figured uh, Groundhog Day, just like the movie, where Bill Murray's experiencing the same day over and over. Let's talk about some movies, TV, video games that we might not be uh, against experiencing over and over, and uh, maybe some that some types of media that we would not want to have to experience uh, uh, every day. So. Yeah, kind of a lighthearted segment here. I mean, just kind of throw into the pot whatever you have. Um, Leland, maybe let's start with you. Do you have any movies, TV, video games that you want to play over and over? Uh, it's no surprise that my video game choice is Factorio. <laughs> How could it not be? <laughs> How could it not be Factorio? I mean, that's just a game that has infinite replayability because it, it it's, it's a complete sandbox. I mean, one, the map's... Uh, or, or generate a new map randomly, a random seed every time you play it. Uh, you can build all of your uh, automation in like a myriad of different ways, like however you see fit. Certainly a lot of different methods of which people build their bases with in the game. It's like the ultimate, it's ultimate creativity. So like, it's like infinite, repl- infinite really replayable for me. And I mean, I should point out that uh, a major I think they're calling it Factorio 2.0 comes out this year, 2024. Yeah. I've already been joking about us losing you as a friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> for the year, because yeah, with all those those uh, changes, yeah, you'll it'll it'll spice it up for you. I I think that's an excellent choice. For me, I think my main video game pick, somewhat well, I wouldn't say surprising at all. Stardew Valley. Some people like T-Hud would probably think Dave the Diver. It's not. Stardew Valley is the one game that I could play over and over and over. First of all, because I already have. I put more hours into that game than any other game ever. But also the fact that Stardew Valley is about to launch version 1.6. And every time they launch a new version, I do one or two playthroughs. Which a playthrough for me is very extensive. It's about 100 hours. So like, like no joke at all, I guess if you were to start at version one to version 1.5 so far, I put through probably 700 to a thousand hours <laughs> in that game, which is not actually tops. Um, Civilization six, no surprise to my brother and you is about 
1300 hours at this point, but Stardew Valley would be second. And so if I was stuck in a time loop, I would probably be playing Stardew Valley over and over. Now, JD, my brother, would it be safe to say if you were stuck with, you know, one game, you would go with Counter-Strike or maybe another game? You know, at, at this point, I think if I was stuck with one game, I would probably pick League of Legends only because the content does change often. And if you're stuck in one game, you could you could keep up to the content. But I actually agree with you on uh, Stardew Valley. I have enjoyed every playthrough I've ever played a Stardew Valley. It's always new ways to, to work your farm and, of course, marry the entire village of women. <laughs> Which your wife loved. I remember that. Oh yeah, she well the way we 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 did co op over COVID, and uh, she would take care of the farm during the day, water the crops, take care of the barn, the cows, the chickens, and I would take all of our crops and then go give them out to all the girls in town as <laughs> gifts. We'd go to one of these uh, of events, you know, like the Easter event, and I'd walk into town, and everyone just loved me, and I had like ten hearts <laughs> maxed on every person, and no one knew who she was because she's—I kept her on the farm, working the fields. <laughs> that's hilarious. No, that was that was by choice. She uh, she loved the farming aspect. So. Oh, that's awesome. That's like when you, me, and Leland played, and Marty, and and Leland. I tell you, there was not a feather missing on those chickens there was not a bit of fluff missing on those lambs because leland would take care of all the animals and nothing else in our multiplayer game yeah he had his lane and he stuck to it meanwhile we're all gearing up to go to the mines every day seeing how deep we can get in there before we die or starve to death coming back with nothing of value I must pet them. I must make them a heart. I need the heart from the animals. <laughs> you did pet them. You petted way too much. You're petting obsessed. <laughs> I hate how much you pet. I, I played a game the other day for the first time. that was actually really interesting to me. So it is, you've obviously heard of Overcooked yep. on Switch and Steam where you, you run your, your food line. And Overcooked can be quite stressful. I played this game called Played Up. It is a roguelike cooking game. Okay. <laughs> Don't tempt me, man. You start playing through it as far as you can get. And it was really, really fun for co-op. We had four of us playing together. Not near as stressful as Overcooked, but effectively you run a restaurant. And it think of it almost like, like Roller Coaster Tycoon. You're trying to attract people in. You're bringing them out their food. You have to still make and prep the food. That's the core concept of the game. But based on how much money you make that day, you can buy a dishwasher and buy a, a bigger grill and expand to more tables. And you you basically go until you fail, until you can't serve the customer base that you have built for. So shout out if you if you get a chance. I think it's on Steam. Really fun game co-op. I think it would be really fun for like a date idea definitely cause a massive fight so yeah check it out played up i will that that totally sounds like my kind of game that's awesome um a few other video games i had uh some which most which won't be a surprise i left off kind of the ones that you guys would roll your eyes at that like yeah of course moby zelda but specifically breath of the wild i had on my list now that's because Breath of the Wild, I love that game, but I don't love the story or dungeons in that game. I just love exploring the land and hunting and cooking. 
and climbing. And so it's a gigantic map. I could just enjoy exploring that map for a lot. The other two, or sorry, the other three games really quickly here I had just for video games, Mario 64, which might be a surprise. Um, I have Mario 64 in a number of formats. I have it on original cartridge for Nintendo 64. I have it for Switch, the All-Star Edition. And that's the one Mario game I don't get bored of. Also, a PC-only game called World in Conflict Soviet Assault, where you actually play both sides of a hypothetical non-nuclear war in the 19... Well, it's 1989 um, between America or NATO and the Russians. It has superb voice acting, voice acting everywhere. Alec Baldwin is the main actor. He's awesome. Just the story is fantastic. I play it once per year. I got to start it up again. It's just so good. And then the last one that I got for video games, uh, my brother will know, Shadows of the Empire, our first N64 game. I'm a nerd. I love Star Wars. When I was 11 years old and I could basically replay the Empire Strikes Back in 3D, on a video game system, as much as I wanted, space combat, ground combat, shooting laser guns, fighting stormtroopers, jetpacks, man, literally behind me right now, in my N64, Shadows of the Empire, because I was playing it a couple weeks ago. Epic game. We used to have to rent a Nintendo 64 and rent the game for the weekend just to play it. I'm surprised you said Breath of the Wild instead of Tears of the Kingdom. I haven't played Tears yet. I own it. Haven't played it. But isn't it just Breath of the Wild with even more map to play and then the construction and building aspect? Too too much more. Too much more to that it's a bad thing. So, and your wife will tell you this, even with the little bit that she's played, because she's told me, there's like a subterranean. There's a below land level now. But it's just as big as the land above. But it's like dark. You need to have like, like it's limited how much you can run and see in front of you. It's very difficult. So it's close, but it's not as good as Breath of the Wild. Breath of the Wild, to this day, I still feel is the best game that has been released on Switch, at least for me. And I know that we, we're tied to Zelda. We're a little soul bound because that was a game we played growing up. But still, Breath of the Wild was incredible. But but JD, this is the big this is the big thing that came out. Did you know that they found out Tears of the Kingdom is actually a Switch 2 game that has been retroactive to the Switch? They they basically tested a higher capacity cartridge that was backwards compatible with Switch, but like the amount of memory that you still could have put more information for Tears of the Kingdom on that cartridge was way more people looked at it and they're like, well, this is a much bigger game, but on this cartridge, you could have put much more. And they basically figured out that Nintendo was testing backwards compatibility for switch Two with tears of the kingdom. It's kind of cool. So is switch Two announced then it's all but announced. So Nintendo's really weird. So Nintendo will literally let you play switch Two or developers but you like you have to put your hands into a black box with gloves so you can't actually see it and they'll let you test what it is. 
and basically based off like feeling and what pe like what developers have seen on the screen, it's basically a, a second switch, just more powerful. It'll it's going to come out next year, or I think it's later this year, but Nintendo hasn't formally announced it, but they've done everything but announce it. Got it. Yeah, I wonder how that uh, is going to compare to... I wonder how that market's even going. I'm so removed from it, but Steam Deck came out and must have taken a lot of that sort of handheld market share, but Nintendo seems to always keep its core user base who are who play Nintendo for Nintendo. They play it for what it is, not necessarily yeah. for the processing power. Yeah. That's myself. That That's Leland's girlfriend. That's what we do is, you know, we're Nintendo fan people and we know when we buy a Nintendo system, we're going to get a Zelda. We're going to get a Mario, couple Marios. We're going to get a Mario Party. We're going to get a Mario Kart. We're going to get Donkey Kong. We're going to get Star Fox. And so we know we're going to get like 10 games that we want before those games are even announced. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, I certainly disparage Nintendo every chance that I get, but obviously you, you can't deny that, you know, their first party marketability, marketability is is Nintendo, right? I Key, mean that, it, yeah. it is Nintendo. It makes a lot of sense as long as it continues to work for them, right? Um, I, I wonder, though, like when it comes to the Switch as a console, how, like, I would l love to somehow see some type of numbers or percentage of uh, Switch owners, like the breakdown of them using it as the handheld or as like a standard console hooked up to a television kind of thing. Like I would, if somehow those numbers could be collected, I'd be very interested to see how much the handheld capability actually gets utilized. I, I, I've been interested in that too, because I only use the handheld capability maybe 15 or 20% of the time. I think Nintendo's made a slightly wrong decision in going with the Switch 2. Given how much Gen Z idolizes the 1990s, I would have done what I would call the Nintendo Retro. Maybe you spell it a little weird, like, you know, R-T-R-O, Retro. You just give a console. It uses cartridges, though it has HDMI chips inside the cartridges. So the cartridges are basically fake, but they are functional cartridges. You have four controller slots, like a Nintendo 64, and you basically build a console off that. And I think Gen Z would have eaten that up as a sequel to the Switch. Local multiplayer cartridges, very powerful because they're just fake with HDMI cards inside, I, I guess, uh, flash cards or whatever you want to call them. Yeah, I, th I think that would have been the best route for Nintendo. You, you have the handheld, you have the console... What we're not talking about right now, and kind of timely, is the Apple Vision Pro coming out. So now you have neither the handheld or the console. You are an augmented reality. Is that the future? Like, is that what Nintendo is going to adopt in a decade? Is that where the direction gaming starts to go? Because I've seen some pretty cool, like, YouTube shorts and stuff of people being on flights. And you disconnect entirely from the flight, and you're in your Apple Vision Pro, and you have a movie screen in front of you playing a movie and over on the side you have your texting and, and social apps and it's just you can actually remove yourself out of the room entirely into a new space no you hit the nail on the head how nintendo competes is by not competing nintendo has a philosophy of here's microsoft and sony and maybe the pc personal computer market 
and they're kindly kind of battling it out over here. And Nintendo's like a satellite, like way over here doing creative stuff that nobody else should care about except Nintendo fans. And that's what they've done. That's what the Nintendo Wii was. That's what the Wii U tried to be. That's what most Nintendo systems were. I think I think the last Nintendo system that was meant to compete directly with its competitors was GameCube, which I think was underrated. And certainly I've checked on eBay recent GameCube prices. It's very wanted right now, very desirable. But ever since GameCube, Nintendo just doesn't want to compete anymore. I mean, we could get into a whole discussion about that because it's interesting, like Microsoft and Nintendo are really buddy-buddy right now, whereas Microsoft and Sony are trying to slit each other's throats. And, you know, it's kind of an interesting market, but it's a little little off topic for the segment. But yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I I guess, guys, because I want to push along the segment a little bit here, we've, we've discussed video games that we could play over and over. And feel free to jump in if you have any last thoughts. But I did want to move into movies and TV as well. Like what TV shows or movies could you watch over and over? Uh, for me, the TV show that immediately came to mind is Community. Like I and I I have oh, yeah. watched that ceaselessly, like endlessly, and I will continue. I can continue to do so, um, especially the first three seasons. Right, like that is just amazing TV. It's just smart and quick and witty. It's it's just such a great show and. I don't know. I can, I can, I can, I can literally just watch it over and over and over again. I could not agree with you more. I, I wouldn't even have put that on my list, but watching those first three seasons, I mean, you had the comedy, you had Alison Brie, you had <laughs> yep. uh, the quirky acting, you had Alison Brie, you had yes. great episode, individual storylines, you had Alison Brie. It was everything you could ask for in a show. <laughs> oh man you nailed it you nailed it no you're you're totally right community absolutely 100 percent. i would add to it a show that i feel has a similar tone parks and rec yeah um yeah. i love that's parks a good show too you know it's yeah yeah Par- parks and rec i kind of grew up with office as well you could throw in there i feel like office is the perfect show to you can put that on repeat as you're you're cooking in the kitchen or doing another task and it's just in the background and every time you'll you'll either pick up a the quotes that are always quoted or b pick up some subtleties that you missed the time watching it before but the office is great uh maybe a spin-off question is there a show that you wish you could watch again for the first time oh yeah that's a great question jd Okay, so mine is my second favorite show. My first favorite show is Chernobyl, but it's only a mini series of like five episodes. But the show that I I wish I could watch over from the beginning is my second favorite show, The Man in the High Castle, about Japanese and Germans winning World War II, what would have happened. They based a whole show off it. It uses historical characters like men and women that actually existed and like Nazis and Japanese commanders that actually existed and what they would do 10 20 30 years in the future right because they no longer be fighting they'd be like aristocrats living in a mansion it's like what would they do how would they treat america how would they treat canada and the show does a really good job of that i mean again it's my second favorite show and like due to connections 
actually connections that I got off this podcast. So as Leland knows, one of our first guests, guest hosts was Braden Demore Purdy, a director. Through him, I met the lead actor of his film, Into the Woods. His name was Stephen Roberts. I still have him as, as a friend. I talked to him. But through Stephen Roberts, he was friends with an actor on The Man in the High Castle who played the Nazi marketing person, person who did like all the billboards in the show for, for the German government that's taken over most of the world. And I actually got to have a two-hour Facebook personal message chat with the actor that played the Nazi marketing person on that show. And it was already my second favorite show of all time. So I was literally able to ask this guy, how did you come up with this character? Why did you do this in this scene? Why did you make this decision? And it was like amazing. I can remember to this day where I was sitting in my apartment to have that chat with him. And it totally increased my enjoyment of that show. And in that show, that uh, Nazi marketing director is my second favorite character. I could ask him any question I wanted. It was amazing. And, and my enthusiasm in my voice tells me it was an amazing experience. Imagine Leland being able to have a two hour chat with, I mean, I don't know who he would want to talk to from community. I'm guessing Chevy Chase. <laughs> but it's like, have a two hour chat with Chevy Chase. How was your experience in community? Why did you do this in this scene? <laughs> Oh, he, he was so funny in that show. Wasn't he disgruntled by the end of that show? But he was so funny in the first seasons. Complete falling out with everybody on that show. Yeah, yeah. He's a dick, JD. He's a dick. Yeah, yeah. In yeah. real life. He, he's, he's a bad man. <laughs> I think, okay, so my, my pick is if I could rewatch a series over again for the first time, uh, I'm going to go with the, the rebooted, remade Battlestar Galactica with the caveat of being able to selectively pull out some of the lesser filler episodes and maybe get a <laughs> get get a tightened up experience because okay, like because okay. that's like early to mid 2000s tv where your season run was always just like 20 to 22 episodes that you gotta you gotta make because it's part of the contract and you gotta fill because they gotta air a season's worth of right so that's like <laughs> that's like when bloat was just inherent i think in making television back then it was just like part of the culture so if you could maybe strip out some episodes that are don't really give you anything or add anything like and tighten up the experience i mean moby you and i we we love that series right like it's a great oh series. yeah love it love it it's two feet away from me right now as i record <laughs> the dvds are right beside me yeah for me i would say Mine was, and I actually, I saw the first episode of it. I was introduced to it at your house, Leland. You threw on an episode of Archer. Mm. Something about the comedy and the characters immediately struck me. And I went home and I purged it and I loved every moment of it. Now it feels a little desensitizing after so many seasons. I think there's been like 14 or something. A lot. Like it's almost like. The diminishing returns season after season because it's kind of the same comedy, same actors. But to go back and watch through all those early seasons again, I, I would love. That's a good pick. Yeah, a special shout out is I just watched a show this year. It was a, an Apple TV show called Severance. It was directed by Ben Stiller. 
Adam Scott, I believe is the lead actor was just really impressed. Like it just was kind of, I didn't even know how to explain it, but really cool concept. Re- looking forward to season two, um, refreshing kind of new idea for a show, not predictable. And so, yeah, definitely, uh, worth checking out as a honorable mention, just something that's relevant and recent. You know, I think uh, Apple TV, they're well on their way to making, like having a, a large enough catalog of like critically acclaimed shows that it, it's like gonna, I'm like, okay, I got to get Apple TV because now I have so much stuff I can finally watch that's exclusive to Apple TV. I mean, Severance and Ted Lasso are the two that immediately jumped to mind, but they're very quickly, like they seem to be just nailing it on their their shows, right? They're, they're exclusive shows. Yeah, when so we had Apple TV a free subscription for whatever it was, a month or three months. Everything in the top ten looked incredibly like desirable and watchable. What was that one about the um like the family that runs the business and it's all about who's gonna be the heir of the business? Really famous. I'll look it up right now. That's cool that you know all of the Apple shows are are really good that way. Yeah, I'll give you a moment there. I I did have one movie on my list that I I could can watch every year and I do watch at least once per year and it's actually inspired by my brother JD on this podcast. Uh it's called Pony Excess. It's a sports documentary by ESPN and it's about a bunch of men that got good jobs, got good money that were graduates of Southern Methodist University in the Southern USA. And they basically illegally or broke some rules, pumped up the college football team to make it like amazing, like a godlike football team. So they would literally buy like gold sports cars for the best players and just like, you know, give it to them. It's like, oh, one of the the players you really want, their mother mentioned she's having trouble paying her rent. Oh, look, suddenly she's in a brand new three-bedroom condominium. Don't know how she paid for it. Yeah, because you can't pay the players directly, right? No, it's it's literally, and, 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 you know, JD, this is to, like, compliment you and how you've lived your life. It's like men that reach their 40s. I mean, you're not there yet, but you're getting close. 40s and 50s that were like, what do we do with all our money in Dallas, Texas in the 1980s? We're like swimming in money. Like, do we buy cars or houses or do we make our like university awesome? And they all chose together. They were called boosters. They like pumped up their university team. And by the way, they're unapologetic. They're like, I mean, other other schools were doing it. We just wanted our school to be the best. Other schools were doing it. Why not? They needed the help. They were poor. Are you going to get mad at us for like boosting poor men and their mothers and their families? Are you going to come after us, bro? And they kind of made some good points, right? It's like, I mean, they supported a lot of these men where they could not, you know, these young men could not survive otherwise. They were doing it for ego because honestly, to be like in a boardroom with people from competing oil companies down in Dallas, Texas, they don't care if they were spending millions per year. It's like, they want a bragging rights. I think it's cool. And uh, so that that documentary is called Pony Excess. Excess. So like, you know, it's a word playoff Pony Express. So if you have Disney Plus, I would recommend you watch Pony Excess. In fact, I don't know if you've watched it. 
my memory, if memory serves, JD, I bought you that movie on like DVD. You did. I have it, have not watched it, have it within arm's reach of me right now. So I will definitely check that out. Yeah. Yeah. Watch it. Cause I literally enjoy that movie because you're my brother and I could see you doing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, the Apple TV show circling back the Apple TV show I was thinking of was succession. But yeah, the only other thing I've got is, is movies and TV shows. I would not want to be stuck in a time loop with, but before I go there, you guys have anything else you'd want to be stuck with? Uh, well, my, I mean, my movie pick, uh, there's a few that I could pick, but I think I'm going to go with Scott Pilgrim versus the world. I just fucking love that movie and quote it. It has everybody in it. Uh, speaking of Brie Larson, Michael Sarah, Chris Evans, Brandon Routh, like the cast is nuts. Uh, and actually, um, Emma and I just watched the new, uh, animated series, uh, Scott Pilgrim takes off on Netflix. Uh, very good if you're a fan of the film. The bulk of the cast returns to voice their characters in the animated version. It's really great. Wow, okay. And it, it's like, I don't want to spoil it, but it's different. It's not just a rehash of the film. It, it's it's different, and it's almost, it, it adds to the film uh, quite a bit. So I would definitely recommend it. It's only like six episodes long. Six, like, 20-minute episodes or something. Very short. Now, Leland, Leland. Leland, our mutual crush, our mutual crush, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. You did not mention her a moment ago. Does she come back and voice in the new show? Yes, yeah, she absolutely does. And actually, the the anime series kind of actually focuses more on Ramona than uh, Scott Pilgrim. And at first, it was like almost like disjointed hearing their voices coming through animated characters. Just because I've watched, I've seen the film, I've watched Scott Pilgrim vs. the World so many times. And just have their their live action, you know, character uh, makeup and, and the character clothes like in my mind. Seeing it in the the animated version, it was almost off putting um, from for me personally. But then after you know into the second episode, it I jive with the style and the animation style and how things move. Uh, really enjoyed it. Really really recommend it. Both both the movie and and the series. I I'm looking up Scott Pilgrim versus the World, the actual movie. I mean, the amount of massive talent that movie had, even people that became famous later, like Kieran Culkin to a degree, Brie Larson, Alison Pill, I guess Brandon Routh already had his movie, but I mean, it had Anna Kendrick. Uh, Aubrey Plaza. Absolute all-stars. Aubrey Plaza, absolute all-stars for that movie. So that's a great choice. Yeah, interesting that you say... uh... Like it took you an episode or two to climatize to the animation and the, the changing characters. I feel for me, that reminds me a little bit about Into the Spider-Verse. Took me a second to, to, to get it, I guess, the art style and the animation. But now I'd say of recent movies that have come out blockbusters in the last couple of years, there's nothing I've enjoyed more than Into the Spider-Verse something about it and and i'm not a superhero guy like i i've kind of you know i've cherry picked all the marvel stuff and dc stuff that's came out over the last you know 15 years but something about the animation and the characters and uh yeah i'm really looking forward to the next movie of that so i guess building off of recent blockbusters i think that would be my uh my pick here for something i'd stick in and watch a couple more times in in the next or short foreseeable future 
and for things I would, ne- would not want to be stuck with, uh, I don't have anything specific, but I'm just going to say anything with Paul Giamatti. I hate Paul Giamatti. Oh. And I don't think that's... You hate Paul Giamatti? I don't know. That, no. F- somehow that has no. never come up on the, on the show, but I have had a deep-seated hatred for, for Paul Giamatti for decades. Decades, I'm telling you. Like, 20 years Leland, I've hated no. this man. no. <laughs> This is like when we battled over Matt Smith in episode one. You cannot <laughs> not hate Paul Giamatti. I, I, hate I can't him. believe this is coming I hate out him. Now. I hate him in everything he's ever done. The guy gets nominated for almost every role he ever has for an Oscar. I know, but I hate him. I hate him. Le- Leland, are you are you a Rick and Morty guy at all? Uh, I've watched some of it. Some of it. I know he does some voice in there, but I, I've never seen Rick and Morty. I was just talking about it the other day, and someone told me to check it out. But I know he. He has a part in that. So just seeing if you were hypocritical or not. <laughs> you know, you know where it stems <laughs> from, you know, and where it stems from that we're talking about it. Have you ever, have you, have either of you seen uh, Agent Cody Banks with uh, like Malcolm from Malcolm in the Middle in it? I was too old for he, that. Okay, so no, probably, yes. Yeah. So it was like right in my age wheelhouse. He's like a child spy, basically. It's a child spy movie. And Paul Giamatti was the bad guy in that film. Man, I hope I'm remembering the right film. But he was the bad guy. He, I think he gets like <laughs> he gets like dyed blue in it or something in that movie. I hated him in that movie and have hated him ever ever since. Ever since. That's a de- this goes so bad far back for me now. I'm realizing uh I'm thank you both for this therapy session. We spoke about mental health earlier. I feel a lot better already. <laughs> oh man paul giamatti we're definitely going to circle back to this in the future i'm going to find a way like life like life will find a way life will find a way um what i have uh really quickly here i'll just fire through it i have any Zack snyder movie other than watchmen i would not want to watch a second time now i like Zack snyder that's the whole point of this but like after I watched his version of Justice League, I'm like, that is fantastic. I don't ever want to see this again. And that would go for most things. It's like one and done with Zack Snyder for me, other than Watchmen. I I also have non-comedy horror movies. So we've seen a few horror movies together, but unless it's something like Final Destination or The Babysitter then I just don't want to watch it a second time if it has no comedy, like slasher flicks, like Halloween, one and done for me. And and the last I have is uh, JRPGs. So, like, I have not fully beaten Final Fantasy VII, the original. I'm about to start Final Fantasy, the remake. But once I beat that once, I don't think I'll ever come back to it. And I can't think of a traditional Japanese RPG I've beaten more than once except for front mission three which i'm about to beat for a third time but that will be the first time ever i beat in a jrpg uh in that that game actually has two completely separate campaigns so it's more like instead of beating a third time i'm about to beat it a second time because i'm about to beat one of the campaigns for the second time yeah, I agree. I think there's just there's just so too many games that are just like one and done, right? Like you're and and, and I don't know that that's necessarily like a bad thing because 
those games kind of need to exist in those markets, right? Like, I think it's completely fine if you're out to develop and create a game that is only meant to be enjoyed once. Uh, I mean, I think of something like um, uh, Firewatch, right? Yep, yep, good point. Really, yeah, I don't think you need to replay that. I think... I mean, personally, at least, I I wouldn't need to. I think the 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 this walking simulator esque game, right? I can I only need to experience once because I had a great experience with it that first time, and I don't need anything that to to really interfere with that uh, experience. I did look. I was mistaken. It was not Agent Cody Banks. It was Big Fat Liar with Frankie Muniz and Amanda Bynes had Paul Giamatti as their antagonist. <laughs> <laughs> that is the movie which my hatred for Paul Giamatti started. <laughs> I love how it's so deep rooted. Years ago, he's never had a chance to redeem himself since that one movie. <laughs> no, everything after his entire career from that is tainted for me afterwards. <laughs> I, I, hey, you know what? Years ago, I with Marty, Ghost Marty, I was watching Space Jam at Leland's house. I was practically listening to a PhD dissertation. When he was talking about it. So, <laughs> you know, it's like he likes what he likes and he hates what he hates. <laughs> that's that's how it works. Um, yeah, no, that's uh, honestly for like uh, for this segment. That's that's all I had. I don't know if you guys have anything else you'd want to be stuck with or without in a time loop or. You know, there's a there's a myriad of things that I that I hate with every fiber of my being that we could probably spend another <laughs> hour talking about, but uh, I think I, I think I'm all right in that regard. <laughs> we got to save something for episode 100. Maybe we'll circle back to Paul Giamatti in episode 100. <laughs> things I hate most, episode 100. <laughs> Well, well, thanks for touching on that, Leland, because, uh, listener, that's right. I mean, we're not going to spoil you with what's going to happen for episode 100 next month, because to be quite honest, we don't know ourselves at this point, but it will be our episode 100. We're going to try to think and do something special, but I think what's cool is, you know, my brother, JD, is part of T-HUD. We're, we're a four-member team. He's not, has never been a formal part of the show, but it's awesome we've had him on before and now and next month we'll bring ghost marty back and uh you'll have all of us in back-to-back episodes so um yeah i mean unless you guys have anything other else to add i think we we head to end of show stuff there okay end of show stuff our website is ttpopcast.com the dhud bobcast on facebook ttpopcast on instagram I'm Leland underscore steel on x slash twitter and uh that is who i've been and I'm Moby. I am. Uh, I run our Facebook social media, but other than that, I'm not really on X or anything like that. Uh, but I appreciate you you listening. And JD, thank you for joining us today. No problem. I'm JD Hammersmith. You can find me on OnlyFans, and I will. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, JD Hammersmith. That's the name I'm going by now, though. So. If anything came out of this episode, at least I got a badass stripper name from you boys. <laughs> you did. But I guess uh, I guess with that, we'll say thanks for listening. Take care, listener. Thanks, listener. Bye-bye. This has been a Sounds of Steel production.